Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Tony Drockton online. Tony, how are you? Good. How are you? I am awesome. Really looking forward to this conversation, especially when we talked about a little bit in the pre-show regarding how you went from one type of career in construction and finance into high finance. It's like I'm, 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 there's, there's a step there that I'm, I'm not connecting and, I, and you're going to share it with us. So why don't you share a little bit about you and we'll dive into this conversation. Well, yeah. Well, I'm just a little old Cleveland boy. Grew up in my dad's grocery store. Uh, he was an entrepreneur in Parma, Ohio, and that's where I I learned the basics of business. Uh, I carried that all the way through to what I'm doing now, which is you know founder, chief cheerleader of a luxury handbag brand, and a little bit in between. Uh, understand, I was the first one to graduate college, and then I got my MBA all at Bowling Green, Ohio. Hightailed out here in the early 90s and was looking to really uh, make money because we don't come from background where, you know, that was always a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, we still were working there. So I jumped right into uh, selling yellow pages door to door because it was by far the biggest financial opportunity. And even though I interviewed with Merck and others and I had opportunities, the upside for that was four to five X what I was going to get on a salary with Merck. Um, and, uh, so I jumped in and did door to door yellow pages to make money, met one of my clients within a year and a half after being rookie of the year, top salesman. And he owned a roofing company and he was like, well, what are you doing? selling yellow pages?" I'm like, I'm making like a lot of money early night. He's like, that's nothing. You can make seven figures within the roofing business. I'm like, let's do this thing. <laughs> I just jumped right over. We built the, what still is the largest residential roofer uh, from Southern California at the time, still had seven offices, did that in over six years, learned all about the construction business. Uh, Craig was a great mentor. He ran the entire company on a single piece of paper. He was super organized. He only worked three hours a day early in the morning, and then he was really good at delegating. So I learned a lot, great skill sets for him as a leader. And we're still very good friends today. My biggest mistake back then was I thought I was ready to fly the coop and I broke away, moved into my own office, uh, had a second roofing company I was running that we worked together. And then I just, uh, you know, things just, I wasn't having a great time. I didn't enjoy the roofing business. Even though the money was flowing, it wasn't my passion. So took some time off, went traveling. And uh, when I came back, I decided I wanted to get into that first internet boom director of sales. I sold digital advertising, yellow pages and digital. So there's an overlap. Uh, and it was great. I learned all about the internet, 98, 99, early 2000s. Uh, really, really went deep into tech and fell in love with it. I was actually used Salesforce in 1999 when it first came out, CRM. I had used Act and Goldmine in the early 90s. And you know that was a predecessor. So I always had a little knack for layering tech into an older business to make it work. And that's how we built that first uh, large roofing company. And then I got out of technology right in 2000 before things fell apart because the uh, opportunity came to me to get into residential finance with one of the other people that was in a CEO, CEO group called Tech, the executive committee. Um, and I was watching this guy with a small company, a couple of people you know, really doing well. 
in residential finance and basically mortgage. And I thought, I said, Steve, can you show me how to do this? Because I don't think this tech thing, I, I'm enjoying it, but I don't really see the upside. Uh, jumped into that in 2000. I got really lucky. I mean, interest rates started dropping. I had a great mentor in Steve and uh, built a really successful mortgage company during the 2000 to 2006, seven boom. Bought some houses, built a few, uh, you know, got married, life was really good. And I got out of it about a year early before everything fell apart, took a couple of years off. And I looked back at all of those things at that time. I said, why do I keep wanting to switch? And I realized I was always focused on money and I wasn't really focused on what I was doing. So I hearkened back to the first Tony Robbins seminar I saw in like the early 90s. And it was all about your passion and making this list. Tony says, make a list of all the things you want out of your choice. And more importantly, Tony says, make the second list, the non-negotiables. If they're part of the choice, you don't take it. I never had made that list, not strongly. So when I put that list together, everything just sort of just worked for me. I'd look at business opportunities. And if it was on that list of non-negotiables, I just didn't do it. I really wanted to be in a non-commoditized business, something where I could apply my passions for art, architecture, design, uh, and something that I could travel the world with. And fashion just made sense. And happenstance, I was introduced to Stephanie Hammett by a close friend right when I was looking in my passion, uh, what I wanted to do. And she had this small little handbag brand right here in Hermosa Beach, California. And she'd been making them for friends, family, had a little bit of luck in stores carried by a couple celebrities, but it was never going anywhere. And she's like, if you want to partner with me, let's do it. And like everything else, I just said, yes, jumped right in, invested a lot of my life savings into the business and the great recession hit right after that. So, you know, that story, classic entrepreneur, everything worked out for me. Every business was successful. I never really had to think about the financial side. And for the first time I was in an industry that I had passion for that I love, but the money wasn't falling from a tree. And that's really, I think my best uh, part of this conversation is that's when I had to do the real work. I had to make a decision. Do I just move on to something else or do I stick with what I really feel strongly about? And I felt strongly that I could build the next great American luxury handbag brand, but I had to understand this industry more. I had to go deeper on knowledge. I had to get some great mentors. I had to surround myself with other people that were, that were really successful in the business and some people that had failed and take all those lessons in and develop where Hammett could go. So between 10, 11, and 12, really, 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 I, th I call it sharpened my blade. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of the two people cutting wood. One's getting way ahead. The other one's looking over and he's working harder. He's getting way ahead. He, he's, and then finally he's working 24 hours a day, but the guy's still getting ahead of him and he seems to be taking breaks and he seems to never be there. So he just goes over and he says, I'm working every hour I can trying to cut as much wood as possible. And I don't even see you working and you're further ahead every day. What's your secret? He goes, well, when I'm not cutting wood, I'm back there sharpening my blade. So I finally was sharpening my blade, not just working for the money. And I focused in on how Hammett could be different, how it could, could really hold a position of esteem with the customer. That was a white space that was abandoned by the American handbag brands. When I got into the business, most brands had really focused on mass. They'd focused on promotion. They focused on volume over quality. 
And I just looked at the North Stars of the Louis Vuittons, Gucci's, Prada's, the houses that have been around 100 years. And I said, I don't want to be them, but I can learn from them. And I started applying them to this business. And once the React Great Recession ended and we started turning things around, we've, we've, every year we've grown. Um, and we, you know, we're the fastest growing handbag brand in America right now. It's an amazing journey. And I, I, I'm not lost on the fact that you know your first couple rounds of things, you exited before the dot-com boom exploded and you, you escaped that. And then, of course, you, you got out of the, the residential side of things before the Great Recession hit in the housing thing. So yeah. it's one of those things where you're like, okay, I'm sure when, when you decide, okay, let's go all in. Um, you know, with with Hammett and the, the bags and the brands and 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 all of that, and all of a sudden, well, you hit the economic, and you you were at a crossroad, and mm-hmm. and you could have, I say the word easily, but you could have easily gone back to anything that you'd done in the past, go do it, and and whatnot, and you would be bored within maybe five minutes and go. Uh, and, and you're like, no, this is not, it's like, I, I, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I want to do. And I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to be successful because your success up to that point was because you put in the time and the effort to learn about the industry, whatever the situation you were in to get really, really good at it. And uh, it sounds like with the challenge with the great recession and with Hammett, I, it sounds like that you, you amped it up a few notches and said, okay, I really need to study this industry. And like you said, study all the, all the players don't want to, like, I love how you said, I don't want to be them, but I'm going to learn from them and I'm going to fill a void that is missing in America for some amazing products. And, you know, I'll, I'll say real quick, one of the things, I mean, there's many things about uh, your products that amaze me, but the, the detail as far as, if you ever need your bag repaired, bring it in. We'll repair it free of charge now forever. That is, when I see that on a product, I mean, remember Sears and Craftsman. If your tool broke, That's you bring it. it in, get it there. It's one of those things, and I'd love to hear your thought on this. It's amazing how few companies do that. It's like, yeah. it's, it's right there. It's not the Colonel's secret recipe. It's right there. Right. You stand behind your product. Someone brings it in, you get it replaced or fixed. No problem. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm always going to buy that product. I'm always going to get, you know, bags and accessories from, from Hammett because they're going to stand behind it. It's quality in all likelihood. It's not going to break unless I'm just abusive with it. Right. Uh, so, but that's amazing, and I commend you and your team for doing that because that's that's the path that is not taken very much. Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple of things you uh, go back on. You mentioned like the roofing business and then the residential finance business, and I went. I did learn the industry, and I learned how to be different. But in both of those situations, the wind was at my back. I got into roofing in '92, and in Southern California, it hadn't rained for five years. Then it started raining. We had fires. We had earthquakes. Everybody needed a roof. I didn't realize at the time that maybe I was just lucky. That's how well we did. Same thing in 2000 to 2006, 7. I mean, the interest rates were just dropping. 
everybody was refinancing. The home industry exploded, so I had the wind at my back. So when I got into Hammett, I really felt the worst was over. Like economically, nine names were fine. It just kept going and going. And for the first time, I didn't have the wind at my back. I was facing headwinds that I'd never seen before. And so that's when I realized that probably my past success was as much timing and luck as it was me being good at what I do. And despite not being passionate about it, I was doing well financially. So here I'm in a situation where I'm facing the winds, but I'm really passionate about it and I'm not doing well. And that's that crossroads you mentioned, right? And I could have easily looked to something that was trending and probably went for the money, but I said, I'm going to power through. And during those tough years, I learned so much about not just the industry, but about myself and about what I was willing to do in order to keep Hammett alive and eventually be successful, right? And that was everything. I mean, I literally lost my home. I got divorced. I couched her for two years. I rode a skateboard instead of a car and then eventually only had to use Uber. But all of that was, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't like, you know, because I was in my passion. I loved what I was doing. And that's, I think, really hard for people to understand from the outside. When you're really in your passion, you're loving life every day, even if the money's not flowing. So, and if you're lucky enough to be in your passion and the money starts to flow, you're Kobe Bryant of the Lakers, right? Everything's working for you, right? It's a beautiful place to be. And when you're working in your passion, I don't want to say nothing else matters, but it things that a lot of people say, oh, this is important aren't you need them you exist you you go through life there's things you take care of and all of that but you're putting so much emphasis on your passion number one you're flowing you know and, and kobe's a great example you know when he played and he was at his top which was pretty much his, most of his career it was it was just amazing to watch and i'm on the east coast so those were some late games uh but worth watching uh, and it's like whenever you see a team or an athlete that is just at a completely different level than everyone else it's you know it's like watching or looking at art you're just yeah. in amazement and going how is this possible how tons of dedication and effort to their craft and well, and michael it's funny you use a sports analogy but think about this i think i was a player for a long time in my other companies. I was a great player. And the transference for to Hammett was I became a great leader. And I reflect on the, my leadership style in the first company was dict dictatorial at best, do what I say. And the second one, it was pretty similar. And then finally, I figured out that I can't do it all. And it, I've got the largest, the largest company we've ever built together and great team behind me and my leadership style has really, really changed to, uh, what can I say? Uh, well, let's put it this way. I used to make people cry in my first company. I didn't mean to. I just say something and they, I'd see them and I'm like, I didn't realize I was making them do that. I thought they were just like having a bad day. Right. So then, you know, at Hammett, I had to really come around to the fact of, of the more I could help people be successful, the more I could show them, the more I could mentor them, especially when they're having a bad day or struggling, they'll grow and they'll stand by my side through anything. And so I know this is a really, you know, it's, it's about leadership. 
And I don't think any leader uh, stops learning if they want to be great. So I've gone to school on leadership. And since being at Hammond, I've got an executive coach for seven years. Um, I've surrounded myself with, with business leaders and mentors that I talk to all the time. I get input back. I was afraid to even have a board of directors at Hammond. I didn't want people to tell me what to do. The minute I got a board of directors, I was like, they're not telling me what to do. They're coaching me and helping me. And I still get to make the choice, you know? And then I was afraid to raise money. Oh my gosh, if I take money, I mean, it means I got to pay back or I got to perform. They're going to, and once we raised our first round, I was like, no, they actually, they're on my side. We're all trying to win together and on and on and on. So that's a total different leader than in the other businesses where, you know, I was really a sole proprietorship or a small corporation. I could choose to go in every day or not do what I want to do. Now I feel that there's a responsibility in this company for me to show up every day the best I can be and to really, really lead with the thought that I'm creating the next group of leaders. And by you doing that, people emulate their leaders. So their behavior, they think, okay, this is how the leader behaves. This is how I'm going to behave in my management or frontline, whatever level they're in. When you're demonstrating, we are all in this to work to, for a greater good and you are pouring into your people so they can be better leaders than even than you. You know, I see that and I feel that in our conversation. That makes them one extremely dedicated, extremely loyal. They're not thinking about going anywhere else, even though there may be opportunities. You, know, you work in the industry, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities and a lot of different things, but they don't want to go because that environment is very hard to replicate because it's, it doesn't exist. So, you know, commending to you for one, having the self-awareness to go, okay, what got me here is not going to get me to the next level. So this, this last, you know, decade or so of transformation for you has dramatically impacted positively the lives of everybody that works at Hammett, your suppliers, customers, everybody gets impacted by this. 100%. 100%. And it, it, that's, that's what's so special about how much, you know, a lot of times people, leaders think, well, I don't have that much impact. Like, oh, you have no idea how much impact you have until you do something positive and you put a positive impact in this world that desperately needs it. Yeah. It just changes everything. So one question I want to bring up too is just, you know, over the last couple of years during the pandemic and all of that, where you know, a lot of your, your products and services uh, are, you know, for people that are going out and doing things for a while. Yeah. It's like, I've got this wonderful, wonderful tote bag and I, I, the government's telling me I can't go anywhere. Right. I, you know, I can go, maybe I can go downstairs if I live in a condo and grab the mail and come back. And yeah. if you want to bring your bag, that's great. Or, you know, there was outdoor dining and, and things like that. So certain areas were better than others. How did you navigate that? I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk fast. Number one, we made choices in March of 2020 around the long-term, even though we didn't know if we were going to be around for the long-term because we weren't exactly financially strong going into that. We were that company that was growing but bootstrapped, raised a little bit of money, cash flow was tight. 
So the first thing we did, I sat down with my coach, Ken Deemer, with Andrew Forbes, uh, my new CEO that I hired a year earlier. And the three of us just made that, we made that list. And I said, two years from now, what do we need to be successful? And let's make choices based on that. And if that doesn't work, we're all done anyways. So the first thing on the list was people. We need all of our people. We said, we're keeping them all. How can we keep them all? Well, all of the executives took massive pay cuts. Second tier took a little bit and everyone under a certain threshold got paid in full. And we made sure they knew that this was being done because we needed them for the next two years, right? That was my biggest choice. I can drop the mic and tell you all the rest of the decisions, but that one decision set off a cascading effect of positivity and support in the company. When everyone else was just saying, hey, go home and get on unemployment, we were saying, we got you. And everyone from our warehouse department, everyone knew that we were there for them and then they were there for us. Then we created a safe work environment so people could come into our offices immediately and people did. They wanted to be together, right? And that was another kind of counterintuitive move, right? People didn't want to only work from home. They wanted the ability to get together and we created a lot of uh, times to do that. And third, we reached out to our biggest customers and we said, we need your full support. You ordered product six months ago, Will you take it? And we were able to work with all of them to take it at full margin for us so that we could continue to make forward product for them for the fall and holidays. And because I was transparent and got a hold of them early, when everything turned around for almost everyone in July, August, September, most companies were stimulus, PPP. We had product flowing all the way through. We were one of the only handbag brands in America that was had fresh product on the shelves because most of the other manufacturers and brands had either completely canceled seasons or retailers had completely canceled getting it, one or the other. We had neither. So, and we did little things. We sent letters to all our boutique owners, the top 100, saying, hey, we know it's tough. You're closed. When you open up, we're there for you. Between now and then, don't worry about it. If you owe us money, we'll get it from you afterwards. And if you can pay, please pay. Wow, surprise. Most of them kept paying. You know, it's just little things like that. We, we really thought about partnerships and our factory owners too. I mean, he's worried. Should he keep making product? How's he going to get paid transparently? I don't know. But if you trust me, if you make it, I will get it sold through the channels. That was enough because we'd already had enough chips of trust with our suppliers, the manufacturers, with our retailing partners. And then the biggest decision after all of that was how are we going to sell today? We went all in on direct consumer. We already had a pretty well built out tech stack. We'd already been doing live streaming for wholesale for over a year. We had enough knowledge around Shopify and digital media that what we just did is we went all in. We cranked up the marketing advertising. We repositioned all the employees to focus on the direct consumer to do more live stream, social, everything. By May, we were already crushing the digital and it just kept going June, July. So we finished 2020 as a company up 35%. We finished 2021 up 87% year over year. And this year we were growing over hundred percent through April, but we had to slow it down because we didn't want to lose money. And luckily we did because in the last three months, things have really slowed down overall and we're doing good. We're fine. No, that's... They should write textbooks on how you navigated that because that is amazing. All of the steps that you and your team did 
One, to protect your employees. I mean, that, that says a lot. Number two, reaching out to every aspect of the supply chain that you deal with and saying, okay, here's this. We need you to do this. We're going to help you with this. If you can't pay us, awesome. We'll, we'll get it from you when things reopen. That is community. You know, yeah. you're you know a, a gigantic brand, yeah. but you acted like the small mom and pop that has the corner shop next to the donut and pastry place and helping out your neighbors. I was raised in that mom and pop, that little girl. Yeah. You know? so, so my dad, my dad, that's how he was. He like he made sure every customer felt like they were the most important person in the world, and he meant it. So so yeah yeah it's it was a crazy time. And by the way, if if we would have crashed and burned because it lasted a year, right? I wouldn't be writing a book about it, would I? The guy that let everybody go, cut their overhead, kept their costs low and survived would write a book. So really, as a leader, you just got to go with your choices and go all in. If you go back and forth, if you keep adjusting everything based on what's happening in the short term, you're already dead. So I just made a choice. We're going to go all the way. And if it doesn't work, hopefully we can pivot again. And if we can't pivot again, it's because it's not working for anybody. And that's just what happens. So we're lucky. And by the way, 90 days in, we restored full pay for everybody and we were cranking. And that's because that's how well we were doing. So that's kind of a nice ending too. No, it's an amazing journey and, and continued journey that goes on and on. So, Tony, I've loved this conversation. I've probably talked to you for days about all, <laughs> all the stuff that you do. But where can people find out more about you, this awesome company, and all this amazing work you're doing? Uh, that, well, you can find Hammett at H-A-M-M-I-T-T dot com. Um, on LinkedIn is a great way to reach out to me. It's just my name, T-O-N-Y, and then D-R-O-C-K-T-O-N. I'm really active there. And then for our products, you can check us out on Instagram, Hammett LA, um, TikTok, Facebook. Uh, and please, if you are, support our 900 specialty retail doors around the country. Go into them, say hello, touch our product. They're the backbone of our success. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. I definitely have all that information in the show notes. So, Tony, thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate you and continued success to you and your team and all this amazing work you're doing. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.